Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, director Joe Perlman talks about the much-anticipated documentary Robbie Williams on Netflix. All about Robbie Williams, obviously, and his incredible highs and lows. We review the latest Marvel movie, imaginatively called The Marvels, as well as the winner of this year's Palm d'Or, Anatomy of a Fall. And one Kieran Cuddy chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I had a bad finger day on Tuesday. Not the band Bad Finger, but our family collectively had sore fingers in the morning my son had his finger stood on mistakenly by a child in his classroom my daughter later burnt her finger and then finally the triumvirate of bad finger days capped off when I was putting a bean bag into the attic and the attic door slammed on my finger and the blood pumped to the point that the aforementioned youngest child who hurt his finger earlier ran down the stairs saying, Daddy's full of red paint. Thought I'd need a stitch. You never know what a day holds. So a bad finger day on Tuesday. Just thought I'd share that with you. And from finger to figures. See what I did there? In the latest round of radio listenership figures that were announced earlier in the week, delighted to say our own little show here, Screen Time, added a thousand new listeners. Now, it's only a thousand, but you know, still all going in the right direction. So to that one thousand of you, whoever you are, thank you for newly tuning in and to the rest of you who continue to tune in. Now, I want to quickly also mention that the 2023 IFI French Film Festival is opening on the 15th of November and runs to the 26th of November. A packed program where it had screenings already selling out. Uh, it's opening with a screening of The Animal Kingdom, a much anticipated movie, followed by a wine reception. Some other highlights include Cedric Kahn's The Goldman Case, as well as Philippe Gorel's The Plough. And younger audiences can look forward to award winning animation from Chicken for Linda. So there are all sorts of things to see at the French Film Festival at the IFI. For more information and bookings, go to ifi.ie or indeed, why not call Dublin? So that's 01-679-3477. And you know, in the age where we talk a lot about experiential cinema going, where people make a night out of the cinema, very few places as nice to make a night or a day out of it than in the IFI, right in the heart of Dublin. A beautiful cinema. And the French Film Festival is beginning there on the 15th of November. And in other movie news and important movie news, at the time of talking to you, it seems there is a tentative resolution to the actor's strike, which is wonderful news for all sorts of reasons. But most importantly, because it appears actors will be getting a fairer crack of the whip in terms of residuals and how their images and AI will be used. So hallelujah, hopefully. Now this week in TV, I was watching this. One day I went in for rehearsals and then at lunchtime they said, Rob, we need to have a band meeting. I said to the boys, I just couldn't be there anymore. And they said, look, we, we want to see if we could do this tour as a four-piece. What do you think? And in the end, 
you know, what do you think was me deciding to leave, take that. Now, landing on Netflix this Wednesday, the 8th of November, is Robin, Robin, Robbie Williams, which is obviously about Robbie Williams. But this doc is a little different to the standard that we might have come to expect with a kind of rock star documentary in that it does document Robbie Williams' life and particularly his rise to fame with Take That and his subsequent massive solo stardom and his dealings and battles with mental health and addiction that he faced along the way. But the story unfolds in a very unusual way, with Robbie watching footage of himself that was recorded over the course of his career, sometimes by him and by his inner circle. And often he's seeing it for the first time, and we're seeing him seeing it for the first time. The documentary was directed by Joe Perlman, who previously gave us two other great music documentaries. For my money, uh, 2018's Bross After the Screaming Stop, and this year, Lewis Capaldi's Now I'm Feeling Better. Uh, and I'm delighted to say Joe joins me now. Joe, hi, how are you? Hey, John. All good, mate. How are you? Very well. So listen, is it like there was an urban myth among documentary makers that Robbie Williams had hundreds of hours of footage, kind of, and you heard about it and said, I'm the man for this job or something like that? That that's close to the myth. Yeah, it's uh, Robbie had thirty thousand hours of archive sitting unorganized in a lockup out near Heathrow that um, that was ready to be unleashed, I guess, upon the world. So he, he was ready to tell his story. So when I I heard about this, I kind of jumped to the opportunity to meet the guys at, at Ridley Scott Associates, and uh, and we kind of went from there. And then your initial meeting with Robbie, I mean, I imagine both of you are, for want of a better phrase, feeling each other out. I mean, he's been burnt, as all rock stars have, by all sorts of people over the years. Did Was he testing you when you first met him to get a sense of you? I, th- I think to an extent he was, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ready for that situation. You know, yeah. I, I think that Rob is a person who, as you say, has been burnt over the years. But um, I, I kind of went into the meeting saying what I always say to everyone. I want to make something honest, truthful, something that people haven't seen before. Um, and also, you know, that I'm going to give a hell of a lot of myself. So I expect you to give a hell of a lot of yourself. This isn't a brand exercise. This needs to mean something. Um, and I think Rob really bought into that and understood what I was talking about um, and was ready to kind of make something different. And had, did you suggest to him, we're going to watch you watch this stuff? Or was that his idea? Or Because it's such a unique kind of, you know, it's the motif of the piece to be pretentious about it. So I'm wondering whose idea was that? It, it was ours. I mean, we did, a, we did an initial kind of interview with Rob early on um, when we got started. And what was, a you know, a great interview, it felt like a lot of what we'd heard before. And of course it had. Rob's one of the most interviewed people on earth i would say he's told his story thousands of times so we walked away as a team and we we had to find a way to force rob force rob's memory or force it into you know force him to reconsider or see things in a new light or show him things that maybe he'd forgotten or chosen to forget um otherwise i i didn't feel like we'd be able to deliver something fresh and something new so we came up with the idea because we had so much of the archive to be able to kind of bring it down to a manageable amount and then over 25 days Rob rewatches his life. Um, yeah. It's uh, it, it was an amazing experience to watch someone do that. I, I can imagine. But that's fascinating what you say. So do you think in a way, Robbie, and, and maybe other rock stars, you know, they nearly, when they talk about themselves, almost unconsciously fall into a kind of 
cliche. They've heard this narrative themselves so much that they're kind of on autopilot with it. But I, I yes, I think, but we all do. I mean, everyone's yeah. got a version of their story that they tell that's easy to trot out. And you, as soon as, you know, every social situation, when you're asked who you are, you have a way of responding. These people mm. have an, an equally similar defense mechanism, I guess. Um, so it's not surprising that the challenge is, who are you really? Um, and that takes time and effort and, and love and care. And, um, and thankfully we got there. Yeah. And so I'm just, I, as I say, I'm really fascinated by that. So when you kind of said to him, look, we need to go deeper on this, he was clearly on board. Yeah, he was totally on yeah. board. I don't know if he knew what that necessarily meant, because I also yeah. think Rob has been incredibly open all across his life about everything he's been going through. Um, so I think it was a challenge in the idea, but equally he was ready for that challenge. And and he himself said, I want to make something different. I want to make something that doesn't feel like the other celebrity documentaries that come out at the moment. So um, this is what we decided to do. Yeah, and well, you definitely achieved it. And, you know, I don't want to give, because there are spoilers of sorts in the mm-hmm. documentary in terms of things that people might be shocked by seeing. But yeah, at the same time, I do want to give a flavor. And a couple of the moments that stood out for me, one in particular is Robbie is at like the zenith, the pinnacle, any adjective or noun you want to use of his solo career. You know, he's playing Nebworth and it's, you you, you know, you nearly have to stop counting the amount of people who attend. Like he is beyond huge at this point. And you capture him in Leeds when he's about to do two nights in Leeds when he he's returning back to the UK. And, you know, it's heartbreaking because he is just broken. And yet he's able to get on stage just about and pull it off for these hundreds of thousands of people. Was that particularly hard for you to watch him watch? Yes. I mean, it's a really heartbreaking moment, the the moment you're talking about, that that he's struggling so much, but he's in such a bind that he has to to perform. He he doesn't have a choice. You know, their entire world, his career, everything would fall around him if he didn't. But he's in such a place that uh, it's almost impossible to think someone could manage that. Um, and I think that Rob looks back on that moment. I mean, he retired after that moment for about six to eight years. So you can imagine how much impact that had on him. So to relive that and to re-see it, I mean, it's pretty visceral in the show. You see how hard it is for him to to watch that and to understand it. But equally, he he sees it in a new light. He sees it in a new way and, and, maybe, um, and maybe is able to kind of let go of that moment, I guess. Yeah. You know, another thing that occurs to me about it, you know, there's some phrase about, you know, the wounds that I have are are, are the things that will heal me. And, and maybe that's not the correct analogy, but in that Leeds moment and many other moments, it occurs to me like the thing that makes him great uh, and that a quarter of a million people show up to Nebworth or whatever is kind of also the thing that sometimes is, 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 is greatest foe, if you know what I mean. He's this entertainer who just has it and is a born entertainer. And yet that stuff causes so much you know shit in his life. Well, I think it's all too often the case. I mean, Robbie is just one incredible example of a, a, a myriad of stories about people who have fame too young, who really struggle and who really suffer. Um, and it's a really, really hard question to ask because ultimately these are you know, kids when they're 16 who are plucked from anonymity and told that they're allowed to go and live their dreams. 
how are you, how are you supposed to protect that person? Of course, they're going to do everything. Of course, they're going to want to go as big as possible. This is what they want to do. But at the same time, that thing is the thing that's also really hurting them and, and crippling them. Um, and it's it's sort of a fascinating thing because I don't know if there is anything you could do to to um, to help someone or to um, to protect them from this because there's nothing normal about celebrity. There's nothing normal yeah. about having hundreds of thousand people shouting their name back to you and singing the words that you've written by yourself you know, back to you um, in these enormous places. So it's it's a kind of, it's an impossible question. I, I, yeah. I, it's uh, it's always going to hurt, but whether the hurt is worse than the, the happiness, I guess that's the question. Yeah. Uh, regular listeners know I'm a massive Billy Joel fan and he just has this great quote that I heard recently that, you know, he's on Madison Square Garden stage and he's Mussolini. And then two hours later, he's some nubbish sitting in traffic on the Long Island Expressway. And no one has ever quite figured out the way for a rock star to handle that, you know, uh, because it's such a surreal experience. And 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 your film shows that. Let me ask you two things. Two, I, They're not quibbles, because I, I loved the documentary. I really did, and it's a cut above. One is... I would have liked him to wear his pants more, but that's pro- that that probably says more about me than Robbie Williams. The other one was just about Guy Chambers. I, I had a real sad feeling about their relationship in that they are soulmates uh, and they are brothers in arms and Guy Chambers is nearly part of the Robbie Williams band in essence and he famously wrote Angels with them. But I was surprised Robbie doesn't say when it ends and people will know that it ends he doesn't express too much post affection for the fallout for him and i'm wondering why you think that is or or maybe there are legal issues I, i'm not sure but what's your take on the guy chambers aspect of it no, no I, I think that's an interesting question firstly let me address the pants um that was <laughs> that was rob's that was rob's decision rob walked into the room for the first time he said he wanted to be comfortable so he got into his pants and got into bed i i had no problem with it at all. And if that's the way he was going to be most vulnerable and uh, most literally stripped down, then I was happy to kind of uh, allow him to do his thing. Um, With the Guy Chambers story, I think they went through a huge amount together and there is a huge amount of affection in the show for Guy and what they achieved together. Um, But I think think that also Rob is a very... Rob can be very black and white with relationships. And... He see, I mean, they did years later, they do get back together and they write music together. Um, and they talk now, of course. And, and actually, Guy came to a screening the other day, which was great. Oh, okay. but, I, but I think that um, at that time, with what was going on, Rob was done. He was done with Guy. And, and, and if anything, the show and what you see towards the end of their relationship reaffirmed to him how done he was with Guy at that time. Um, I, I, there isn't much in the show where he... Um, talks about the feelings now of relationship. You know, there isn't so much of that because he's. It's very visceral. It's very in the moment. It's very, you know, it's very reaction reactionary. So I think um, there wasn't necessarily place for I love Guy Chambers now, or I love Jerry Halliwell now, or I love Nicole Appleton now. You know, th- th- that that doesn't necessarily matter. It matters what was going on with Rob then, um, yeah. and that we, that's what the kind of narrative we try to deliver. Listen, we're nearly out of time, but I mentioned the Bross documentary. I mentioned Lewis Capaldi. I should also mention you did the Harry Potter uh, 20 year reunion thing, which is uh, adored in my house. But what is it? You're probably asked this a lot about you and, and rock stars. Why are you so 
I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but you, you, this is clearly what you like doing. Well, I find fame and celebrity fascinating. It's kind of what I was saying a bit earlier. It's these people who get to live out their dreams um, in front of enormous audiences, but it's so it can be so painful. It can be so challenging, and uh, and and also what's great about making what I feel is great about making you know shows about characters who people know and public figures is I get to humanize these people and I get to show you you in these people, and and if anyone can kind of uh, get anything from any of these shows. That's the idea, you know, with Lewis, for example, the his struggles he had with his parents and the openness and the willingness to go into, into, go, in, into what he was going through. Yeah. Uh, a, a bigger conversation to happen um, yeah. around mental health and around Tourette's and around how we are with our kids and, and how we deal with their dreams. Um, yeah. and, and that, that's kind of, that, that feels like a really an amazing thing to be able to do. And equally with Rob, this is, a cautionary tale about fame that it, it clearly is and you look at bros it's a cautionary tale about fame but in a family um yeah. i think fame is this poison chalice that is uh is all too often you know especially in the modern world that we live in it's something that people strive for and kids strive for to be a tiktok star a youtube star a singer or an actor or whatever it is it comes at a cost of course it does um yeah. and yes there might be amazing plaudits and the money and the houses and the private jets and all the stuff you think you see but the reality is behind that person there's a human who's struggling and going through things that you're also going through um so the these stories are valid for that reason yeah and look clearly i'm a fan so I, maybe you can't say but i'd love to know what your next project is <laughs> I, I unfortunately can't say yet, but I'm excited. I will be able to talk about it soon. Um, it's okay. uh, it's not music in a in a in the world of celebrity, um, slightly more American focused. Um, but I'm excited for the next few projects as I move slightly away further away from music. Okay, I'll just shout out some Hollywood names and you can say yeah or nay. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. So I saw in the tabloids, Robbie went to a screening a couple of nights ago. Is he what? What's his reaction to it? He, he, uh, well, he's seen it when we finished about a yeah, month. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I, and I flew out to show him the show, and he had two amazing things to say. The first thing he turned to me and goes, My God, Joe, you know how to polish a turd, which I appreciate. <laughs> and then the second thing was, he said, For the first time in my life, I'm going to be seen, seen as a human. Um, and that that felt amazing to hear that from him, to finally have his chance to tell his story um, truthfully and honestly in the way he wanted to tell it. Um, I think that's that's uh, he's he's really excited about the release, and I know he is. He's been messaging me this morning already. He's uh, he's wow. excited. Okay, well, Ireland sends him and indeed you our best. Robbie Williams is on Netflix from this Wednesday, the eighth of November. I've been talking to its director, Joe Perlman. Joe, thanks a million. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Joe Perlman there talking to me about his new documentary, Robbie Williams, on Netflix. And as you could hear me pointing out there, it's a different documentary. Uh, this is not polished and, you know, very approved. I mean, of course it's approved by Robbie Williams, but it's incredibly honest in places. And I found it a really great watch, I have to say. And I'm not like this massive Robbie Williams fan, but he, he comes across as very honest, very sincere, very troubled at times. And uh, it's a brave, it's a brave documentary. It really is. So, and it's well worth a watch on Netflix as we speak there since Wednesday, November 8th. Up next, we go to the cinema for the week's new movie releases. 
Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now we turn to the week's new cinema releases. Chief among them is another superhero movie. This may be the end. It's called The Marvels. And a French courtroom drama, which I've also seen, called Anatomy of a Fall. Delighted to be joined now by arts critic and film critic, Chris Wasser. Chris, hello. John, how are you? I'm very well. So listen, believe it or not, I went to see Captain Marvel the night before this show started. So that's nearly five years ago. And I remember thinking, this isn't actually that bad, Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. So is this a sequel to that one? It is, yeah. It's a sequel to to two things, actually. So it's a sequel to Captain Marvel, which you're right, it was four or five years ago when it was released. And it actually feels like it's an MCU film from a different world. You know, it's before the world changed. And it's also a continuation of the Disney Plus streaming service, Miss Marvel. And then you're also bringing in stories that started in WandaVision, that started, you know, in various different Marvel films. So it's trying to do a lot of things at once, basically. Yeah, and when I was reading the synopsis of it, because as I say, I haven't seen it, like I was getting confused by all the different universes that seemed to be leaping across. But notwithstanding the universe blending and all that, what's going on in this? Yeah, you need to have done some homework. So first of all, it helps if you've seen those three things that I mentioned, Captain Marvel, (laughs) WandaVision and Miss Marvel. Uh, But it also introduces brand new characters and and they're a little bit confusing, but I'll try and break it down. We we start off with a bad guy, uh, uh, Zoe Ashton's Darben, who's this sort of devious extraterrestrial warrior. And her home has been destroyed uh, due to a civil war. The sun is dying, a little bit like the storyline from Superman, actually. And she's out in the universe trying to find and build a better home for her people. But to do so, she'll need these magic light and energy bracelets they're called the quantum bands she finds one of them she you know she has a, you know a bit of a temper tantrum because she can't find the other one so her minions set off to find the other one they don't know that it's actually with this jersey city teenager named kamala khan who is miss marvel you know and viewers will recognize it from the, from, from the series brilliantly portrayed i should say by iman valani um and while darben has been out you know trying to find the bracelets she's also kind of you know tearing holes in the universe so you have a case where nick fury who's head of you know the marvel warriors or whatever they're called now he sends out his finest soldiers one of them is carol danvers that's captain marvel the other is an astronaut monica rambo played by tiana paris they have a bit of a connection nick fury sends them out to investigate and when they do that they end up touching this jump point and i hope you're still with me that messes with their powers and long story short you have a case where the astronaut the superhero and the teenager they become intertwined. Their bodies are intertwined. Whenever they use their powers, which are all sort of similar, they end up switching places. So you have a bit of a body swap situation going on. So these three heroes are going to have to find a way to stay in the one place long enough in order to figure out what's going on and to also, you know, take down that villain I mentioned at the start because she's trying to build a new home by destroying other people's homes. Okay, so they're all going to have to figure out how to stay in the same place. Did you want to stay in the cinema watching this? I, I I struggled, John. I struggled. Yeah. Um, do you know what's interesting? I did say at the beginning, you need to have done your homework. Yeah. I've seen most of the things here. I, I, I didn't actually finish Miss Marvel, but I understand who the characters are. We get a little bit of a recap. I understand what they've been through. And I quite enjoyed the first Captain Marvel film. Yeah. In terms of knowing what's going on based on what you know has come before, that's fine. It's actually the new stuff that's very confusing and very poorly explained, you know, and, and, that, and that's new for Marvel because sometimes they're, they're quite good at explaining what's going on, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. But this one I just thought was just knotted and, and, and tangled and just ridiculous, but not, not, not in a fun way. And, and we've heard stories, Variety recently did this um, piece on, you know, behind the scenes piece on what's happening at Marvel. And, and it's fair to say that the studio you know, after years of success is experiencing its first crisis. You know, we've heard of that. Uh, we know that 
critical favor is dwindling. Box office figures are down. It's been a while since they had, you know, a proper billion-dollar hit. Yeah. Uh, we know that they're they're scrambling to kind of, you know, what are they going to do in light of the Jonathan Majors scandal? Jonathan Majors being, you know, their new big villain. Mm-hmm. And the actor is, is you know, is, is awaiting domestic abuse, tri- uh, trial and domestic abuse charges. So it's all a bit... It's all a bit of a mess, but in terms of this film, there was test screenings during the summer, and the response to it was not very good. And they called in the director Nia DaCosta to to do reshoots, but she was already working on her next film, so she couldn't go in. So we understand that there were, were maybe three to five weeks of reshoots, and it shows because mm-hmm. the way that this film is edited, it's a mess. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because this is this is a sad state to be in, and and you and I are both fans of cinemas in general and people going to them. But I read a few reviews of this in advance of talking to you, and I realise we're in a poor situation where I'm almost happy to hear this is bad because so many of us in this game and, and viewers as well are are getting tired of the superhero thing in the same way we are you know, Disney plundering Star Wars at this stage. But I think people, and I'm like, it's a terrible thing to be almost pleased that something's bad, but I can't help feeling this might herald a change that that they realise they need to do something else, which is a sad state of affairs that I would be happy that something's getting bad reviews. I really don't want to be in that situation. I know what you mean. And I actually didn't think we were going to be here because there was a time when, you know, Kevin Feige and everyone else the yes. Marvel. They were in complete control. Absolutely. That everything was so well designed and so well planned out. Yeah. Uh, to the point that if you put the DC films next to it, you thought, well, that this is how you manage a superhero story. And that's not in the DC film. That's not how you do things. This one feels like a DC film. Yeah. And, and it's weird that, you know, there's they're still, they're still the occasional gem. I had an awful lot of fun with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But that's because James Gunn knew what he was doing on that. And there wasn't too much of a huge connection to the wider MCU story. But in trying to build these multiverse stories and in trying to kind of, you know, set things up for three or four or five films that are going to come afterwards, you have just this, you know, a tangled mess, as I said earlier, where, yeah. you know, the, everything's just a bit muddled. Everything's just a bit unfocused. Tonally, everything's off. You know, there there are times when this film turns into a little bit of a musical. There are times where it's a little bit of a comedy. It's a little bit uh, uh, of a drama, a thriller, an actioner. It's just you. you it, it, there there were times where I just thought, just pick a lane, um, and all of that could be, you know, forgivable if you had decent performances and if you had uh, decent effects. But I found the effects. This this film cost two hundred and seventy million dollars to make. And at times, John, it looks as though, especially when you have the characters talking to one another, it looks as though it was shot in the garage. <laughs> and and, and that, that is not good enough. I'm wondering where the hell has this money gone? Yeah. And you can tell that the performers, aside from Iman Vellani, who, who plays Miss Marvel, you know, her charisma and charm just withstands the, the dull screenplay. You know, she is quite good here. Um, and she's playing this version of, of a kid who's who's genuinely excited and nervous to be around those heroes. And, and that, that's a good character. There's some good ideas. And does Brie but, Larson seem kind of bored with the material? Or not to put words does. in her mouth, but... No, 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 you're right. Like next to like it's the grown ups around a man who who are, mm. you know, who are worse for wear here. I mean, Brie Larson just looks disinterested, she looks distracted. Um, mostly because like a lot of the dialogue that she's required to say doesn't really make any sense. A lot of the time herself and Tiana Paris are required to literally stand around and try to explain the plot. And I'm sitting there, well, this is this is this is not working for yeah. you guys. But what's actually sad to see is Sam Jackson, Samuel Jackson's uh, Nick Fury go from this, you know, powerful figure of authority in that first Iron Man film and all the way through, you know, the first, let's say the first two dozen <laughs> Marvel yeah. films 
he's become a parody of himself. Yeah. He's just there to crack jokes and to say something smart. And it's just, I need to, I think he needs to, to you know, to hand in that trademark eye patch. Yeah. It's just, it's not working anymore. And incidentally, if this is the first time you're listening to this show, Chris Wasser has often give uh, decent reviews to superhero movies. And I am in no means not a fan of these. I've said many times Avengers Endgame is you know, The Empire Strikes Back for my children's generation and it's a fantastic movie. I like Blue Beetle earlier this year. The Flash we gave a good... So we are not down on superhero movies for their own sake, but we are down on the bad ones and this seems like a very bad one. So Chris, what would you say stars-wise for the Marvels? Yeah, you're absolutely right because, you know, I love the Tom Holland Spider-Man trilogy. Yeah, uh, the, I forgot the, about the, you know, that, yeah. Yeah, that first uh, Taika Waititi uh, tour, tour film was, was fantastic. The Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy I'm a fan of, but this one, not great. And also, I should add, the runtime is a little bit of a problem because you think that 100 minutes or 105 minutes, that would be good for a Marvel film, but there's a sense that that's a result of some just hazardous post-production cutting, you know, and and, and, it, and it does show. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go for one star with this. Wow. And I know that might sound one star out of five, and, and I know that might sound a little bit rough, but it's a little bit like what, I'm going to, you know, uh, I quote Mark Commode here when he's talking about, you know, giving bad reviews to, to Tarantino films and people are always saying, but it's a Tarantino film, it's great. No, we've seen how good Tarantino can be. So when he's as bad as he has been, it's not, it's not, an, you know, there's no excuse for it. It's a similar kind of thing with Marvel. We've seen how high these things can mm. soar, how good superhero movies can be when time and effort and, and you know, proper story is, 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 is in there. There's no excuse for something that's yeah. bad. Okay, bring back the Russo brothers. So listen, that is one star for the Marvels, which is in cinemas this week. If you do choose to go and see it, here's a little clip. Heroes. It's an old-fashioned notion. But the world can still use them. Ready. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. We destroyed Thanos. But it's not over. My work is inevitable. There will always be more to finish it. This is just the beginning. She tore a hole in space. A clip there from the Marvels, which Chris Wasser gave one star to. He didn't do so lightly, though, folks, and he made a very cogent case for why he's giving it one star. Now, to something very different, and for my mind, much better, having seen it and not having seen the Marvels, is a new, well, it's French, it's, it's in English occasionally, uh, called Anatomy of a Fall, a French drama that's in select cinemas this week. French courtroom drama, I think you might say. Chris, tell our listeners what's going on in this one. What's going on is that we have a German author portrayed by Sandra Huller. Her name is actually Sandra in the film, too. Um, she and her husband and their son, uh, they're out staying in their Alpine chalet. And she is giving this interview to a, a student. And they're actually interrupted by her husband's uh, loud music. And they say, you know, we're going to have to reschedule the music. So she goes off in the chalet to do her own thing. Her husband's upstairs working. The son goes off for a walk with the dog. And when he comes back he finds that his dad is dead in the drive and it looks like his dad fell from the top balcony of the chalet. So, and the son, Daniel, is visually impaired. Um, so he can't really see what happened. There are no other witnesses here. Uh, the police are called in. Um, you know, no one really knows what happens. I mean, it looks as though all the evidence points towards somebody pushing Samuel, that's the husband, off of the top balcony. 
Um, but, you know, you have his wife saying that, that that's not what happened at all. So she actually calls in a friend of hers who's a lawyer and he says, you know, I'm going to represent you. We fast forward a year and we get into the courtroom drama side of things. And that's when the marriage between Samuel and Sandra is put under the microscope. And all of these reasons, I mean, but the what the Sandra and, and, and her lawyer are arguing is that the husband wasn't well and that he had tried to take his life before and that clearly this is a case of, you know, he, he did take his life here. But what, you know, the prosecutors are saying is, no, there is plenty of evidence to show, or maybe there isn't, to show that he was attacked, that something happened to him. So it's up to us to kind of decide who 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 we trust here who do we believe um yeah Indeed. that's the basic setup and as the as the courtroom plays out we see you know problems fissures that may have been in their marriage and just to say you know there and maybe not an audience to this show maybe I'm flattering myself but sometimes people are you know foreign cinema can can you know it puts them off and subtitles and all that this is Forget that it's in French, not that you should, but I'm just saying don't be put off by the idea that this is an art house movie because this, although there, there are, it's nicely filmed and all, and I don't know what you think about that, but this is a meaty courtroom drama. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know what, it's kind of, it kind of reminded me at times because the, it feels as though the centerpiece of the film is this uh, brilliantly acted uh, flashback to really show you, you know, uh, the, the problems that, it, that that Samuel and Sandra had in their marriage um, yeah. in, in the days leading up to his death. And and those scenes, when we're examining the marriage, they kind of felt like scenes that were taken from Noah Bambuk's marriage story. It's <laughs> that sort of level yeah. of intensity. Um, but if you can imagine Noah Bambuk's marriage story ending with, you know, either Adam Driver starting a Hanson dead in the, in, the, in, the, in the front garden, that's the kind of, that's the kind of level of, of of, uh, of of weirdness we have here, um, yeah, it, it it's there's an awful lot of English in this film. There's yeah. a little bit of French, there's a bit of a German. I I think that Justine Triet is is playing with the language in a way that you know because there are times when Sandra stops the the uh you know the prosecutor and her own lawyer because she's German first, but her English but she's fluent in English and she's tried to be fluent in French because that's her that's her husband was French. But there are times when she needs to explain things about the marriage and explain things about their life in English. And it's that sort of like crisscrossing between the languages that you're kind of like, well, I, I don't know it it makes it, it adds to the mystery basically. It yeah. adds to the intrigue. You don't know who to trust. And also Huller's performance it's, she's just fabulous to watch. Mm. And I and I think it's because we just can't get a read on her. And I was reading during the week that Justin Triet, the um uh the co-writer um and, and director of this film, you know, she was asked numerous times by the cast, is this person innocent or are they guilty? And she just wouldn't say, and I'm obviously not gonna give it away, but she told the actors, or particularly uh, Sandra Huller, play her as though she's innocent. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. That's all. That's all I'm going to say in my, in my in my review of it. Um, it just kept me. It just it kept me guessing. It's two and a half hours long. It flew in. Yeah. Um, it's it's quite Hitchcockian in places. Mm-hmm. It's quite inventive. Uh, the performance from uh, uh, the young fellow Daniel, um, uh, or who plays Daniel Milo Mercado uh, Granier, he's he's terrific. Um, every everything works so well. Even the dog, John. Even the dog. <laughs> the dog it, has a ten yard stare, which is brilliant in it. Actually, he does. Know? Yeah, his name. I think his name is Scoop in the film. Scoop. His 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 name in real life is Messi, and he was the uh, proud recipient of the uh, Pan Dog Award. A can. Um, wow. Just the Trias, just the Trias, the director. She took home the Pan Door for this film, uh, yeah. which for you know listeners who might not be familiar with Cannes Film Festival, it's pretty much the best film of the festival. And Justine Trias is only the third uh, female uh, filmmaker to take that award in the festival's history. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it won the Palm Door. And, well, I'm not, rightly so, I haven't seen them all, I don't know. I certainly enjoyed this. It's interesting what you say about the language thing because you almost feel there's moments when 
she needs to use English to be truthful as far as she can see it when she's talking about a marriage, which I thought was a very interesting way of doing things and the language thing, like what language is the most truthful? It was kind of a fascinating study on that. But as yeah. I say, this is not some, there may be elements like that that are quite philosophical, but this is a brilliant, great courtroom drama. And I particularly like, I don't know much about, the, well, I know nothing about the French justice system, but the way they play it in this, the, the the two lawyers are kind of like superheroes nearly. They have these long capes and they're dashing across. It's almost like ballet, but brilliantly done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I don't know anything about the French legal system, but um, the way that everything is, I was going to say performed, uh, but the way that the lawyers speak in the round with the, with it, yeah. again, I'm using words like audience. It's almost like this big theatrical display. Um and yeah, there are art house elements to this film, but it's very entertaining. It's a little bit of a crowd pleaser at times, yeah. uh, brilliantly acted. And it just, it performs that excellent magic trick where, you know, I and I, I probably will watch this film again. The thing about a courtroom thriller is, or a, the thing that makes it a courtroom thriller stand out is when you just don't know a, how it's going to end. You just don't know what way it's it's going to go. And B, even after it's finished, you still don't know. And I'm not going to give anything out. You still don't know who was telling the truth. Yeah. You, yeah. And, and, and I've been thinking about it for days afterwards. I don't know what to make of the finale. The finale is so well orchestrated. Don't. It's quite playful. Say, no no, say, no well, say no more. Say no but more. Say no more. For all sorts of reasons. Yeah. We're out of time yeah. as well, but I, we don't want to spoil it. <laughs> so very finally then, what would you say stars wise for Anatomy of a Fall? I think we're going to see Sandra Huller's name uh, doing the rounds during next year's award season. Definitely. Um, I'm going to go with, yeah, we'll go with four and a half stars. Wow. Okay. Four and a half stars. Ooh, he's halved it. That, he's serious, yeah. folks. <laughs> I'm going to go four. I don't know why I'm not going four and a half, but it it, it, it it hits me as a four. But it's it's one of the best movies of the year so far, without yeah. question. So that is Anatomy of a Fall, which Chris Wasser gave four and a half. I gave four for what it's worth. Chris, lovely to talk to you as always. Thanks. Thanks, John. Up next, Kieran Cuddihy on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. There is a little show on this station called The Hard Shoulder, which you can hear every day from four to seven. And why wouldn't you? Because it's hosted by my old mocker, Kieran Cuddihy, who joins me now to talk about his favourite movie. Hello, Kieran. Hiya, John. How are you? I'm good, very good. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for it, having it's me. It's kind of strange. Thanks for studio asking me after all these years. After all these years, yeah. yeah sorry, I just long, long I, time. Yeah. Long. Anyway, listen, your favorite movie. It's only been chosen once in this slot, famously by Ian O'Doherty. Oh, really? So there you go. Make of that what you will. Our old mucker, Ian O'Doherty. Tell our listeners what it is and why. It is Jaws. The movie Jaws. It is my favourite movie because it's just such a good movie. I don't really know what else to say uh, beyond that. I know with film buffs about Jaws, um, it holds special significance for all like technical reasons, the way it was shot and, uh, uh, and different things like that. And... It was the kind of the prototypical summer blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. See, you actually know a lot about this. You're pretending yeah, it's not for film books. Marketing campaign behind it and all that, all that sort of stuff. But um, when I saw Jaws first, I was about 14. So I was, it was 1997. Okay. 96, 97, 13, 14. And none of that would have mattered to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was just all irrelevant. I, I wouldn't have been aware of it. And even if someone had made me aware, I wouldn't have cared. So I just loved it because it was just such... And I just consumed it as a piece of entertainment. Sure. As a piece of entertainment, it is brilliant. Which is what cinema is first and foremost. Yeah. It's the Anthony Bourdain school of thought of food. It doesn't matter what it is or where it comes from or how it's cooked or how it's put on a plate. Actually, all that matters is 
does this food taste good? Yes. And actually, that's really all that matters in a movie. This might be the new jingle for the show or certainly this <laughs> slot. Tell me this. We, I, I don't think we need to go through the plot because most people know it's about a shark terrorising this yes. town. But there are political aspects to it and you're a bit of a political head as well. Does that appeal to you, the idea that the, the guy wants to close the beach but the other guy doesn't want him to do it because the money's coming in and all that kind of stuff? Or? Oh, yeah. Like... um. That's a good question. I'm not sure if that would have appealed to me at the time, but yeah. I mean, it, that that is one of the, uh, that has become one of the great kind of, um, I wouldn't say kind of cliches of movie, but the the, the Mayor Larry Vaughan character yes. has been uh, much mocked and pilloried and imitated uh, since. Um, and you can see it, like, I, I guess that's why it is so good is that it is, there's so many different aspects of it that you can project onto other parts of mm-hmm. your life and the world. And there are those people who are willing to make those sacrifices. Listen, you know, you've got to, uh, the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few as famous Dr. Spock said. <laughs> um, you know, and there's that. And so, so that element of it probably people can relate to, yeah. you know, without even direct experience of it. They can relate to that idea, the mm-hmm. idea of it, yes. which, is, which is what makes the movie as well in a much broader sense, I think, so good is that people relate to the sense of fear. Yeah. That's what it's really about. Absolutely. And the sense of fear is so brilliantly evoked with this cello playing shark or whatever it is. And I watched it a while ago with my, he was 10 at the time, my eldest boy. Well, what did he think? He loved it. And I think it was, it was I, his sense, it was the first time I was showing him an adult kind of orientated yeah. movie as opposed to The Which Empire Strikes PG Back. PG rated when it first came So out. I gather, yeah. But have you watched it recently? I have watched it maybe four or five years ago, and the last time I watched it. Does it still hold up for it's you? Sti- now, you see, that's always a very hard question to ask because it does for me. But if I was watching it for the first time four or five years ago, yeah. what would I think of it? I don't know. It's impossible to answer that question. Okay. So that part of that is always the nostalgia. Yeah. Is remembering how much you loved it as a teenager. But I think it still would hold up because really the only part that kind of jars, I think, for a modern audience yeah. is the mechanical shark at the end eating Robert Shaw's yeah. character a little bit. Yeah. You know, that that's the most unrealistic moment. Yeah. Um, up until then, I mean, really, most of the shots are just a trawler puttering about the Nantucket Sound. Yes. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah, um, no, good point. And the music carries it so brilliantly. And yeah. it's still, it still has the power to put you on the edge of your seat. I it think, does, with, with very little blood and gore. Yeah. There's actually very little in it. There's yeah. the fisherman's corpse that kind of rolls into shot uh, near the start and obviously Quint getting eaten at the end. Beyond that, I mean, there's there's very little. Sorry, there's the boy <laughs> getting eaten on the beach. Yeah. Maybe that's pretty bad. That, that's bad in the grand scheme of things, but yeah. But there's very little. And actually, the funny thing about it is, I think, I remember reading a few years ago, um, Spielberg wanted there to be much more of the shark in it. Yeah. But they just could, they couldn't get the mechanics to yeah. work. It just like famously, this shoot took forever yeah. because it kept breaking down. Like if he had his way, you know, genius filmmaker and all as he is, if he had his way, there would have been way more of the animal. Yeah. 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 The no, monster. I, yeah. And there's documentaries about that. And just if he had got his way, the movie wouldn't have been as good if he no, wasn't no. so bound yeah. by what was going on. And tell me this, you know, it's eminently quotable. Are you around the pubs of Kilkenny or the running oh, fields of Kilkenny going? 
and the way to go home or yeah, uh, and, and all of we're going to need a bigger boat the and, USS is it the Indianapolis is that the, the boat yes. that crashes or is that the Indianapolis anyway I can't remember close enough yeah but uh, you know whatever have our men go into the water <laughs> he does he does it folks um, it's no it is it is so quotable it's just a great 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 movie have you shown it to your own children no I haven't shown it to them okay. yet so my eldest is nine um, and we'll get quite anxious about things so I'm not quite sure I'm ready to I don't want to go down to the beaches of uh, the southeast, the sunny southeast <laughs> next summer and my child is like standing up in the rocks in the distance because he won't go near the water no we don't want that Tell you know, me- I met Richard Dreyfus a few years ago there was a screening of Jaws for the Jemison Cult Film Club in 2014 I had a little look before coming in here so nine years ago now and he was an absolute arsehole well do you know what <laughs> I met him I think maybe at the same thing. And he was lovely to you. You're going to say he. Oh. I was with someone else. I was. I was in a. Is it might be to say the more lowly position, but I was helping out someone else. But I found him very nice. But that's yeah, uh, he, I, just not pleasant. No? no, he just. Well, do you know what? He he is one of these people, and you didn't go up to him and say, "I love Jaws." No, <laughs> <laughs> like everyone loves it. We were all there because we love Jaws. It was a screening of Jaws. Yeah, okay, so and the mansion he house should have expected was done that. up like this. That's my point. The mansion house was done up like Amity Island. Wow! So they had it all mocked up, and yeah. they had it was one of these performances where people would run through the the audience. Oh kind of like wow! And he beach. was at that interactive, and he was there doing a Q and A, and then. All he wanted to talk about, and I know it's very serious and we're all meant to be serious about these things, but all he wanted to talk about was how many sharks were killed off the back of Jaws being made. Okay, right. It had this terrible ecological impact. And basically, he kind of said, I'm sorry I ever made this movie. And I was just caught there. I'm sorry, but you've just been flown to Dublin. I'm sure you've been put up in a fairly nice hotel, Richard. And the best you can say is, I'm sorry I made this movie. Oh, dear. Yeah, that's misjudging your audience. Never meet your heroes. We always ask everyone in this slot who's not in the film business, have you ever acted? I did. I was in an <laughs> ad on telly. That's right, you were. <laughs> was, I thought it was an so, ad for a mortgage company. Uh, KBC was, Bank. Wow, yeah, you played a... Stu- I'd forgotten that. I was, on, I, was, my research. I was a researcher here in News Talk at the time and I was walking down uh, the street, South William Street in Dublin or Clarendon Street and it was a really hot day and I was drinking milk. So you know like that scene in Anchorman where he's like, ah, milk was a bad choice. A little like that. And uh, I was glugging this pint of milk and uh, someone tapped me on the shoulder and asked me would I read a line into a iPhone. They were right. casting for an ad and I did it and I just thought it wasn't that yeah. very funny grand. And then I got a call back, went and auditioned for it and then I was at a wedding with Donald Gleeson not with him, like I wasn't yeah, yeah. plus one. He was at the same wedding as me when I got a when I got a phone call to say I had been cast in this ad. Wow! Yeah, and so had you done plays in school before that? I did plays, but I was um, in the chorus, John. Okay, so it was never your chorus. desire to be an actor. No, and after your big ad, after my big ad, uh, no, it was never my okay. desire. And the casting agency, you know, amazingly, never called me back to do any other work. <laughs> <laughs> what does that tell you? And finally, uh, you and I bore the office often with our conversations about running. Yes. Now, you're a more accomplished runner than I am. Not. Yes. But, it's like, I mean, it's a matter of record. You run the Dublin Marathon just a couple of weeks ago. You forgot your runners. Yeah. To me, that's like a Freudian nightmare nearly. It was. I was not far from News Talk Studios in the Liberties on Cork Street in Dublin. And I looked at a guy on the street walking towards the start of the marathon and I looked down at his feet and he had the same runners as me. And it's when I saw them, I turned to my brother-in-law who was with me in the car and I said, 
I don't have my runner. Uh, but like, what were you wearing? Uh, sliders. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I slipped them on walking out the door. Had yeah. to be quiet. Didn't want to wake up yeah, the house yeah, yeah, even yeah. early and didn't have them. So it was a nightmare. Yeah, every every call goes through your mind. Will I run it in my sliders? Will I <laughs> not run it? Will I run it? And it's a short space of time. You're thinking all no, these all things. No, all of this yeah. Goes, like, yeah. flies through your mind. And then my brother-in-law had a spare pair of runners back at the campsite he stayed in, in Clondalkin, uh, that were slightly too small, which was a bit of a nightmare. Oh. But they were better than going in my bare yeah, feet. Yeah. Better or than sliders. the bud. And then did you get your runners halfway? Uh, a friend of mine met me waving my runners over his head up in Castlenlock Village. So I was only 11, 12k in, oh, 11k. Okay. So it wasn't bad. I got them back. Yeah. But you know what? You know, because we do talk about it. I was injured. So it softened the blow. If I, if everything had been going perfectly yeah. and I was really chasing the time yeah. and I did this, I would feel very foolish. Yeah. We're just in danger of going down a running rabbit hole here. Yeah, so we'll yes. stop it we'll right now. Back in. His favourite movie <laughs> is Jaws. He has his radio runners every day from four to seven on the hard shoulder. Kieran Cuddy, thank you very much. John, thank you. This is a great white, Larry. A big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. 1916, there were five five people people chewed up in the surf. In one week. Tell them about the swimmers. A shark is attracted to the exact kind of splashing and activity that occurs whenever human beings go in swimming. You cannot avoid it. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell for Christ's sake. Look, Mr. Vaughan, Mr. Vaughan, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. Yes, Jaws there, featuring, of course, Richard Dreyfus, who Kieran Cuddy did really not enjoy meeting. <laughs> there you go. My thanks to Kieran for... Uh, joining me to chat about his favourite movie. That is it for this week. Busy show next week with the return of the new season of The Crown. I'm going to be talking to some of the cast, including Elizabeth Debicki and Jonathan Price, and some lots of other great stuff besides from the TV and indeed the cinema. I'll just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And of course, it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. And as Pat Kenny reminded me to point out it is also repeated on Sunday nights at 8pm you can get in touch with me at any stage John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com thank you for listening have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you all next week